The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. When did you say this was? May 15th, four months ago. Do you have anything with the date? A parking receipt. Had you ever met Mr. McKeon before? No. I'd seen his family on the news. I'd heard about their hotels and stuff, but that's about it. Well, the problem here, Christy, is that any civil suit could be seen as opportunistic. Because of their money? Yes. I'm sorry, but I didn't choose my rapist. I don't know about this. It's a criminal case, not a civil one. Except the new state's attorney rejected the charges. Yeah. We need to keep our eye on the ball, and Christy is just going to look like she's trying to make some quick cash from the McKean family. Do you believe her? I believe a lot of things I can't prove. All right, here's what I think. I know the McKean family lawyer. Erickson? Right. William Erickson. That's just what we need. Two wills. <laughs> McKean's going to keep this out of the press, even if he didn't do it. So my guess is they throw her some cash, maybe 50 grand or so to keep her quiet. London. It is Thursday, January 8th, 2015. I'm Bob Metz. I'm Robert Vaughn. And this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM. We're, we're, we're we'll be with we'll you. We'll be with you <laughs> until noon. <laughs> no, it's not right wing. It's, it's just right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. And welcome to our first new show of... 2015. Well, the day is long arrived. Bill Cosby's coming to town, and that's one of the issues I'll be dealing with. Robert, what will you be doing in the second half of the program? Well, I'll just uh, lighten it up a bit. I'm going to revisit some of the science fiction authors that I read as a child and uh, look at their philosophies and politics. That should be interesting, because I'm sure we'll have some notes to compare. Uh, You know, of course, Bill Cosby's coming to town tonight at the Budweiser Gardens in the midst of a controversy that is not so much about Bill Cosby as it is about the organized campaign to destroy what I think is a fundamental principle of justice, innocent until proven guilty, and so much more. Lest I not get around to making my point by the end of my my presentation here, because I've got so much material, let me just say what the conclusion of everything I want to say is going to be, and that's this. Everybody's talking about this court of public opinion, and I just want to say there's no possible defense available to anyone in a court of so-called public opinion, because there's no such thing as a court of public opinion. That's a fiction created by those who are avoiding or opposing justice and the rule of law. You know, we last uh, discussed this issue on November 27th here on Just Right, show 378, which you can still hear online at www.justrightmedia.org. And on that broadcast, we presented all of the known facts at the time, and I think we gave a pretty fair shake to all sides in the controversy, and very little has changed since then. I don't intend to revisit the material we covered then, so check it out for yourself if you're so inclined. But today, I'm sure that there will be those who will accuse me of defending Bill Cosby. And in a way, I am, I guess. I'm defending his right to be able to defend himself, if indeed that even proves to be necessary. I'm not defending any of the actions of which he has been accused. And I want to say from the outset that it's okay 
to hate the alleged crime or crimes. It's okay to hate sexual assault in any form it may happen to take place. In fact, that's a good thing. But an allegation of any crime, or even a thousand allegations, is not evidence. Nor should we permit ourselves to believe that. I'm just appalled by what I'm seeing in the media today, and I'm going to be sharing some conversations that I had with certain other online personalities as well as other online calls I heard. Um, you know, how many people does it take to convict an accused criminal? Only one. <laughs> the one with the evidence to support his allegation. What's not okay is to toss these allegations into the so-called court of public opinion, into a forum in which proof has no place, in which evidence is non-existent, and where the mob rules based on its own biases and prejudice, and in which there's no decisive outcome. There will never be an outcome in the court of public opinion. Let's remember what a court is. A real court is a place of justice in which a decision of guilt or innocence is arrived at in an objective way, through due process and with the support of evidence. In a court of law, the jury is not even allowed to know about previous similar incidents with relationships to the defendant. That's how strict it is in the court of law, and we're sure not getting that in the court of public opinion. The court of public opinion is an environment of gossip, hearsay, make-believe, fiction, have-truths, a little bit of truth, and ignorances. The so-called court of public opinion never arrives at a verdict because it's a perpetual circus, and that's just like, if you want to talk about things in the court of public opinion, that would be your objective. And this court of public opinion, when it comes to criminal charges, is the very thing that the principle of innocent until proven guilty is supposed to protect us from. The right to be left alone and go about our business without undue interference from others is the essence of this principle. In the court of public opinion, I haven't heard a lot of people concerned about justice protesting the arrival of Bill Cosby in Canada. I do hear left-wing feminists, unions who are organizing along with them, who, by the way, who even discuss their wage negotiations in the court of public opinion, if you think about it. Isn't that right, Robert? Left and right-wing media, all expressing their summary judgment on the issue of Cosby's guilt. Those who do express opinions defending principle of justice aren't passing any judgment and appear quite willing to believe either side of the debate but want evidence and they want to see that the accused is given a fair hearing and the right to defend himself, which seems fair to me. This is not the case with Cosby's accusers who regard Cosby guilty no matter what the evidence, the argument, the principle, or any lack of them. They don't seem to care about the justice of the charges or about due process. In fact, they're, they're openly saying we don't care about those things. You know, to hell with them. And this has been turned into an issue about all sexual assault victims and about none in particular. Now, Jane Piper is a local comedian, called herself a lover of freedom, and she, was, she appeared on, uh, on CJBK's Andy Utman show just um, before, the, in, during the Christmas holidays, actually. It was right in the middle of the holidays there. And she's from the London area, and she was talking to him, and I guess she's a local comedian and actor. And she, si she said she's sick and tired of people arguing innocent until proven guilty and made some fascinating arguments that, that, that just speak tomes about what's going on in this debate. Things you won't see printed in the paper. That's what, that's what I love about talk radio. You know, you hear people saying it raw. You, you can hear what's motivating them. So, oh yeah, this was December 23rd, and so she's talking to, uh, to Andy Utman on the show, and, and she says, 
you know, what she finds interesting is this, quote, notion of innocent until proven guilty as if we're all in a court of law right now. Well, we're not, she said. We're not in a court of law right now. And unfortunately, the statute of limitations runs out. By the way, we'll be putting all these clips from which I'm drawing these quotes online so you can hear the conversations yourself later on on our website. Now, she argues that in a rape allegation, all a man has to do is say it was consensual. Yes, it happened, she said, I'm quoting her here, but all you have to say is it was consensual and that she wanted it. There's nothing more disgusting than having your most horrible, violent moment turned into something that everyone has now publicly said, you wanted it. I can't even imagine what these women are going through. I haven't heard any of that kind of conversation with regards to the Cosby issue, but there's a reason she's saying these things. Then both Andy and Piper called for not allowing Cosby into Canada, citing another non-sequitur to justify their public lynching. They said, I wish they would just not let him run into come into Canada. There was a similar situation that came up recently about an American guy traveling around the world, basically teaching young men how to pick up women and essentially how to assault them. Um, he was banned from the UK. He got kicked out of Australia, and she says, I believe Canada also revoked his visa, and that guy hasn't broken any laws either. But there was enough proof that he was advocating violence, and that was what eventually prevented him from continuing what he was doing. Well, she admitted there in her own statement that they had proof. <laughs> Already, it's different. They're comparing apples and oranges constantly. And she says, as far as I'm concerned, when you have a list of 20-plus women, and you know there are probably five times that at least, that is why people are saying, don't let him in here. It's not about his celebrity, it's about him as a human being. This country has to stand up and say this is not acceptable behavior, but it's such a difficult situation because of the statute of limitations and everyone's saying, oh, he needs to be charged and he's innocent until proven guilty. And then she continues, you know, as far as I'm concerned, she says, she kept saying that, myself having been raped, now there we hear the real background, and she got into her own personal experiences with being raped and it having taken over 11 years to convict her rapist. She said, if I had to go through those 11 years being told he's innocent until proven guilty, I don't even know what I would have done, what that would have done to my spirit, just my emotional body, she says. Now, in saying that, she's intimating that, well, she didn't have to go through that. She said, if I had to go through that, right? So that means she didn't. Why didn't she? Because she laid charges, and the charges stuck. As soon as you lay charges, people take you seriously. That's how you get your allegation taken seriously. But until you go to this point of laying a charge or in getting into that courtroom in some form, your allegation's just an allegation. And she argues every time someone says he's innocent until proven guilty, they're basically saying that they believe that all the women are lying. A person accused of a crime is innocent until proven guilty, but a victim of a rape is, is joking until proven victimized, she said. And that's disgusting. It's absolutely disgusting, she says. It worries me more about those people than the story itself, which is what this is really about. It's about you and me, Robert, people who think like us, innocent before proven guilty. I, think the, uh, I think the phrase is actually presumed innocent. I, Th that's true. I have a, a, an objection to the phrase innocent until proven guilty. It, it basically assumes, not presumes, assumes that the man is innocent. Well, he may not be. True. Presumed and, and That's innocent. a good point, good yeah. point. But it's still the same uh, In other words, we must act as if he is innocent. That's exactly right. And, and she also says that uh, the other message being told is that women lie, you know. And, well, women do lie, just like men do. They're mm -hmm. no different, what, you know. 
Uh, strangely then, she defended the Budweiser's decision not to cancel the Cosby show. She says, I don't think they're the ones who should be penalized. You have to pay the artists. Of course, that's because she's an artist. <laughs> and she, she's in the business, so she wouldn't want to be cut off on that end. There's lots of money involved in this. But then listen to this baggage. I, I, don't, I don't get this. And she said this all on the air, and I'm quoting her verbatim. I don't think Bill Cosby's going to show up. I think he's a coward to the umpteenth degree and that he's waiting this whole thing out to see if he can get paid without coming. After he sees the media coverage, I think he'll pull out at the last moment. I read in the Hollywood trades that he's hired private investigators to dig up dirt on the accusers now. This is a man who refuses to speak out himself. He's now going to prove, and I say prove with serious air quotes there, (laughs) she pointed out, he's going to prove these women wrong by doing what is now illegal in the courts. Get this. You're not allowed to bring up a victim's sexual history. You can't just bash them to create your defense. I'm reading these words. I'm going, is she listening to herself? What is she doing to Cosby right now? That's what people did in the 60s and 70s, and that's what Bill Cosby would have done if this had gone back to court in, in the day, back in the day. He's basically in that mainframe, in that mind frame. You know what? I'm just going to make people believe that these women are liars and therefore I didn't rape anyone. But he's never said he didn't rape anyone. And the fact that he didn't just rape these women, he drugged them. The disgusting and predatory nature that's needed to do these acts is absolutely horrifying. And to that, Andy Udman replied, that's why I believe in this case we go with principle. There's no damn way that Bill Cosby's coming to London and we're going to find a way to stop him. Wow. <laughs> That's what Andy thinks a principle is. He then expressed his disgust at Bill Cosby's attempt to defend himself by hiring private investigators to whom he's paying six-figure fees for information that m- might undermine their arguments. And she pointed out, Bill Cosby could have any interview in the media he wants to state his case. He knows he's guilty and that he can't play the game he was playing before, basically manipulating everyone into believing this facade of the legacy he artificially created. That has been torn down, so he has nothing to stand on anymore. So now he's going to do what cowards do, try to destroy the women more than he already has. All of these judgments coming out of this one person about someone she obviously doesn't really know. So to give us all a sense of the real difference between a real court and the court of public opinion, we offer you the following scenario from a very early episode of The Good Wife. The second episode, in fact, in which the facts are very different from the Cosby case, but in which the issue is exactly the same. Believe it or not, I only watched this show for the first time on the night before we prepared for this show today, so there's serendipity for you. Let's listen in. Mrs. Florick, what would you say to someone bringing unsubstantiated sexual charges against a public figure just in order to gain an advantage? You want to know what I would say? I would. I would say you're trying to change the subject from rape. Well, I would agree that as offensive and misguided as these charges are, the optics aren't exactly in our favor. So, we're willing to make an offer. Ladies? McKeon's lawyers made a financial offer that Diane and I actually agree on. A first. It's a cash settlement. $450,000. You're kidding. We don't have to go to court? He just offered that? You'll have to sign a standard confidentiality agreement. Both parties free each other of liability and agree not to speak to anyone, including the press. What? It's standard in civil agreements. I want everybody to know he settled. Can't we tell the police? Not if we sign a confidentiality agreement. McKeon could withdraw the award and sue you for defamation. What do you think? I think you're looking for justice, Christy. 
And sometimes justice comes in a form we don't expect. If you take this money, the settlement will be known to the two people that matter most, you and him. I'm sorry, no. He'll know how much it costs to rape somebody and get away with it, that's all. This is about him admitting that he did this to me. You have to size these things up pretty quickly. 12 clients, stockbroker types, no one out of control, it was easy. They paid $400 for a 90 minute two girl fantasy strip. Two girl? Who's the other girl? Uh, I, I don't remember her last name though. Emma Kean. how'd you meet him? The groom? He offered me another $100 for a private lap dance. When I got in the bedroom, he locked the door. Then he grabbed me. I tried to get the mace from my bag, tried to shout. Did you tell anyone afterwards? Mora and our driver, Grant. He was the one who suggested she drive me to the hospital for the rape exam. And the service, Worldwide Elite. How long did you work for them? Two years. And what else did you do there? What do you mean? I mean, what else did you do there? For a year, I was an escort. Didn't you think that might be important to tell us? I haven't gone on a call in a year. I was in an abusive relationship. I needed the money to move out. When I moved, I stopped working, but still stripped. So what's your point? A call girl can't get raped? Yeah, that's my point. Thanks. Look, she lied to us. Why believe her now? Because she walked away from half a million dollars. And when did she ever lie to us? You know, the more you bond with these clients, the less helpful you are. Your stripper was hooking. Why is she my stripper when she does something bad? <laughs> okay, so the point is to prepare for trial so we don't actually have to go to trial. Five minutes. We understand you can corroborate Christy's story. Which was? That she told you about the rape right after it happened. Look, I like Christy. She's a good tipper. But when she drinks, she doesn't know what the hell she's talking about. But you do. Christy gave the guy a lap dance, he paid her, we went home. Nobody said anything about any rape. I don't blame Christy for trying to get extra money out of McKeon, but hey, she's lying. Sorry. Don't worry about it. It all comes down to the rape kit. Still no luck finding the other stripper. All we have is a first name, Mora, and a general description. We need to box McKeon in. There's only one of two ways his semen ends up in that rape kit, consensual sex or rape. We get him to swear there was no consensual sex. Why would he do that? Because he has a wife. The rape kit came back. It's not his sperm. It's not McKeon's DNA. Grant says you're lying, McKeon says you're lying. I'm not lying. I... It's really not his sperm. Christy, we need to get the food. Who else did you have sex with that night? No one, I swear. Well, you obviously had sex with someone because it isn't his sperm. So was it a boyfriend or another client? You need to find Mora. Were you the other dancer there that night, Mora? I was, yes. And your driver, Mr. Grant, what did he tell you after you took Christy to the hospital? He told us that the McKeans were very rich and we should all keep our mouth shut. And that's why you went back home to Michigan? Yes. I'm sorry, I was scared. And to reiterate, Christy told you about the rape immediately afterward? Yes, in fact, 
He followed her out into the parking lot and he said, don't tell anyone, just take the money and shut up. No further questions, Your Honor. All rise for Judge Abernathy. Good afternoon. I have given this case quite a bit of thought, as you can imagine. You have both argued your case well. But I find myself judging in favor of the defendant. Without a DNA match to the rape kit, we have a classic he said, she said, and as much as my personal sympathies lie with the plaintiff, the evidence does not warrant a favorable decision. Judgment in favor of the defense. You okay? No. I'm sorry. I believe you. And you can believe anything you want, whether the court agrees with it or not. That's not the issue here, but there is a distinct difference between the so-called non-existent court of public opinion and a real court. I was, uh, I, I listened in on a conversation again on Andy Utman's show in, on this past Monday, and I participated in that one in which he featured Ann Bachma, who is the organizer against Cosby in the Hamilton area, and of course Megan Walker, our own local feminist, who, and all of them argued the same thing. Uh, we got a, we're in the court of, of public opinion, so it doesn't matter. This whole issue of, of um, you know, presumed innocent until guilty. Well, I was just, I just couldn't believe it anymore, you know. And then Andy said something amazing. He said, given that what we're hearing about Bill Cosby, Gian Gomeshi, and Prince Andrew, and the list goes on and on, how can a young woman today not think that all men are pigs? <laughs> just stunning. Interesting that none of the three names cited by Utman had have actually been found guilty of anything, and only one's been charged. I was literally stunned to hear him say, say that, given our lack of actual knowledge. So I phoned him up, and I finally asked him the question I wanted to ask a long t for a long time. I said, okay, we're in this court of public opinion. What could Bill P Cosby possibly say in his defense that would satisfy you in this court of public opinion? Well, there was a silent pause for about four or five seconds, after which Andy replied, the thing I find so sad is that he hasn't even tried. And I pointed out, well, you haven't answered my question. And, he, and Andy said, well... He'd want, him, he'd want Cosby to say this, Andy, they're all fabrications. They're not, there's not an element of truth to any of them, and let me go through the cases individually and show you the reason why the particular accuser is making the accusation, end quote. Well, so I had to point out to him, well, Cosby has said that already. He said it through his lawyer. And his problem is that he's already made agreements and arrangements with a lot of these women, made prior settlements, part of which is you're not supposed to discuss it afterwards. That's part of the issue. And, you know, if anyone is subject to a potential lawsuit, I would say that Bill Cosby could sue Megan Walker and all the protesters uh, for trying to damage his reputation because they don't have any proof. There's no evidence with which they can support their issue. And you can't argue a negative. You can't give details about, I didn't do this and I didn't do that, if it's just an allegation, and especially if it didn't even happen. And so I pointed out that I, you know, there's no such thing as a court of public opinion. And I wanted to know why, in all of the cases where the plaintiffs settled, why did they settle? You know, what was the evidence that Cosby's team brought into the case that made them say, well, I don't have enough proof to go ahead? That's, that would be interesting to hear, and that's how things should work. And, of course, 
Andy left off totally disagreeing with all of my arguments. But I think by choosing to remain personally silent and speak only through his lawyer on this matter, Bill Cosby took the only rational and proper course of action available to him to keep the discussion of criminal accusations out of the court of public opinion. He knows he can't win there. He can't even make a case. No resolution would ever be possible nor arrived at. Anything you can and will say will be used against you. That, you hear that said a lot about a real court. As with a real court, one's only defense is silence until the correct time and circumstance to speak arrives. And, you know, a court is a place of justice, not of, ju- you know, not judgment, uh, and not just judgment. Justice is achieved only through tried and tested process, which actually is what's being attacked by those campaigning and speaking out against supposedly Bill Cosby. But Cosby, at this point in the game, appears to be caught in the crossfire of a campaign explicitly aimed at obliterating the meaning of the term innocent until proven guilty, and, of course, of always treating all allegations very seriously, even if there's no evidence to support them. And this has been an an explicitly stated objective of the feminist campaign. They already know they can't win a legal battle against Cosby, which is amazing, so instead they're out to ruin his reputation by making public accusations of criminal activity that they cannot prove in a court of law and for which there's no objective defense and no objective evidence and therefore no defense. And that's the point. There is no defense in a court of public opinion. There is none. You can't have one. All you can have is allegations and several of them, which in the minds of some constitute proof that there must be something to the charges. So the only thing the feminist groups have left to them, remember, it's not the victims of Cosby who are organizing these protests. They're organized by members of the public who are completely uninvolved with the allegations themselves and totally involved with their own experiences and causes. This is feminism in action. And all they have left to them is to attack Cosby's reputation. Remember, feminists have a reputation too, and it ain't pretty. And they have an agenda, and it ain't pretty. (laughs) Women never lie, but they're never believed unless in large numbers. The innocent will never be believed. All men are cads and potential rapists, and on and on goes the subtle and not-so-subtle propaganda war. It's all freedom of speech, don't you know? And, of course, there's a numbers game, 30 women plus. Nobody mentions that they're all organized by one lawyer. Don't know how you can find 30 women who, one, didn't lay charges, 30 women who, two, didn't collect any evidence, 30 women who, three, waited until the past the statute of limitations, and then who all finally came out of the closet all at the same time. Isn't that an interesting coincidence? That tells me something else besides <laughs> the guilt of Cosby. You can look at that two ways. So the feminists among us have already gone on record that this campaign's all about getting society to take allegations more seriously, and I addressed that issue in detail last time we talked about this. But, you know, it's been a court of public opinion. It's just a public lynching, and that's what we've been witnessing. I predict this story is not going to go away for a long time and that our commentary today will be simply one of the ongoing chapters in this controversy. So always remember, there's no possible defense in the court of public opinion. And we'll leave you with this until we return. He's fine. Crawl. They can come in. Malcolm Reynolds is which? I'm Captain Reynolds. My first mate, Zoe. This is Jane. Very nice. I am Adelaide Nishka. You have seen Crawl. He loves to stand at the door to say, boo. We got word you might have a job for us. Yes. Yes, an exciting job. A train. 
has uh, something I need. You have worked the train before? Maybe a few. Are you going to ask me what it is I need? As a rule, no. Yes, good. You have reputation. How come Reynolds gets it done is the talk? Well, I'm glad to hear that. You know what is reputation? Is people talking? Is gossip? Uh, I also have reputation. Not so pleasant, I think you know. Crop. Now for you, my reputation is not from gossip. You see this man, uh, he does not do the job. <laughs> i show you what I do with him. And now my reputation for you is fact, is solid. You do the train job for me, then you are solid. No more gossip. Right. Oh, you do not like I killed this man. Oh, no, I'm sure he was a uh, very bad person. My wife's nephew. At dinner, I'm getting earphones. There is no way out of that. pre-recorded briefing made prior to your departure and which for security reasons of the highest importance has been known on board during the mission only by your HAL 9000 computer. Now that you are in Jupiter's space and the entire crew is revived, it can be told to you. Eighteen months ago, the first evidence of intelligent life off the Earth was discovered. It was buried 40 feet below the lunar surface, near the crater Tycho. 
except for a single, very powerful radio emission aimed at Jupiter, the four million year old black monolith has remained completely inert. Its origin and purpose still a total mystery. You know, Bob, there's sometimes a danger in revisiting your past, and sometimes things are not as you remember them to be. <laughs> 2001, for example, the clip we just heard from enthralled me when I first saw it in the 70s after its release, back years after its release, actually, which was in 1968. I was enthralled by its imagery. I yes, marveled at the special effects. It of was Doug, amazing. I Doug remember seeing You liked it too, did you? Yeah, I yeah. remember seeing it at the theater. Didn't know, wasn't too sure if I understood the plot entirely, but certainly that little last section we played was almost the prelude to 2010 that came later. Yes, it was, <laughs> yes. yeah. You know, um, Douglas Trumbull did those effects, which mm -hmm. were um, groundbreaking at the time. I was very pleased to see that it was true to science in that there was no sounds in space and no gravity on the ship. And it took months to reach Jupiter, not like today uh, science fiction. Gravity on every ship. Uh, every ship makes these uh, roaring engine noises yeah, in space. I, I'm surprised that our space station that's up there doesn't look like the one in Arthur C. Clarke. That seemed eminently practical, spinning that big wheel well, to get gravity. We, well, actually, no. It's because if you want to do research in space, what, what does space have that we don't have here on Earth? No gravity. Yeah, but you can do that well, in the center of the fall. wheel. You know, like you could do that in the center of that wheel, yeah. but you'd, you know, th we're discovering that people under no gravity for a long period of time, it's not good for you. No, it isn't. Mm. No. Uh, you know, the monolith was a, uh, a flight of fancy, mm -hmm. not science fiction, of course. It was a flight of fancy. And uh, the voyage um, through it is reminiscent of the voyage of the Enterprise through V'ger in Star Trek, the motion picture, long and torturous. <laughs> <laughs> Other than that, I think it was a great film. But as a teenager, I didn't give much thought to the story, the plot, which in retrospect has an ending left much to the imagination and speculation of the viewer. And 40 years later, after having read the sequels, 2010, 2016, and 3001, I could focus more on the theme and philosophy of the story rather than the Three, fanciful... 3001? 3001, yeah, it was the last book. Didn't know that was four books. Um, yeah, I could focus on the theme, and uh, rather than the fanciful uh, science fiction elements which enthrall me as a kid. Now, the true story of the monolith and intent of the aliens who placed it on the moon are revealed in three thousand and one. And here's a spoiler alert for the listeners out there: if you haven't read Clark two thousand one, and for me, or some of the books <laughs> I'm about to talk about, I'm going to give away some of the things in them. So if you plan to read these fifteen, sixty-year-old novels in some time in the future, just uh, switch off or and listen later uh, online at justrightmedia.org, where they'll be archived. <laughs> now, the nature of the aliens in three thousand and two thousand and one and three thousand one was malevolent, and the destruction of Earth is actually ordered as the the life there is not fit to habit the stars. All in a, a, a pretty bleak uh, view of humanity by Clark, which is reaffirmed in what has been called a classic of science fiction, Childhood's End. Now, I read Childhood's End in 1975 and actually wrote a book report on it in high school. Unfortunately, that report no longer exists. But I can recall my impressions, and they were very favorable. Mine too. I read that one as well. Mm. Again, there's that danger of revisiting your past. And over the holiday, I listened to the book as an audio book from Audible, and it was exactly as I remembered it, with one exception. I'd grown up. And as a 14-year-old, I marveled at Clark's imagination. The book took my mind onto a far-distant planet populated by weird aliens far superior to man. 
and they, too, were inferior to the universal hive mind, to borrow a Star Trek term. I thought Arthur C. Clarke was a remarkable man for having produced such a work as Childhood's End and discovered more about him. I was only too pleased to find out he was a popularizer of science and of space travel, and a scientist in his own right having contributed to the idea of communication satellites in geosynchronous orbit. As great a man as he uh, was, his politics and philosophy leave a lot to be desired. His love for a world controlled by the United Nations is evident in much of his work, and his apparent belief that man is an ignorant animal not worthy to populate the stars is laid bare in his writings. Regarding his writing, again revisiting childhood's end after 40 years, I found this characterizations were two-dimensional. One critic called his characters every man. They were forgettable in that they seemed to lack any particular individuality. I think two-dimensional is one dimension too many for some of them. (laughs) (laughs) Really? You you found the same thing? Especially in 2001. They were all robots as far as I was concerned. Very robotic, yeah. Um, They lacked any particular individuality which set them apart from the others, uh, except perhaps in the role they had to play in the plot. Now, in stark contrast to the writings of um, Heinlein, which centered around a competent man... That's Robert A. Heinlein, a competent man or woman of action, where individuality took supremacy over governments and their covert agents. Clark's characters in Childhood's End are helpless pawns in the greater plan of the supreme universal overlord. Childhood's End is a book of humility, with humanity a weak and passive victim to the majesty that is the overlords and their master, the hive mind of the universe. The book is not so much science fiction, as horror. Everyone dies in the end. There's that spoiler alert. (laughs) Um, They give up and die. They don't reproduce. Apparently they'd lost the will to reproduce. Those offspring which evolved to bastardize So so the feminists finally did take over. (laughs) So the feminists finally did take (laughs) over. (laughs) Bob, come on, give it a rest. Uh, (laughs) Apparently they had some offspring which evolved and that's a bastardization of the term for sure because it's not evolution. Evolved into cells of the greater universal mind, lost all of their individuality, and were essentially dead as humans. Their parents despaired and resigned themselves to a fate worse than death, a fate of powerlessness, a future without them, and no future at all for humanity. The theme is reminiscent of the film Avatar, where the protagonist surrenders her humanity and individuality to join some nebulous collective plant Gaia consciousness. The book will be loved by those on the left who despise their individuality and humanity and long for a fanciful world of community and collective consciousness. Megan Walker would like it, I think. Clark was indeed a singular and great man. His legacy will survive his writings and his promotion of science and space. His technical contribution of working out the concept of geosynchronous communication satellites speaks for itself. Phenomenal. But as with any great men... who are accomplished in one field, they lack understanding of things which lay outside that field. In Clark's case, it was politics and recognition of man as an individual, not as a cog in a wheel turned by more powerful men. If Clark had a hand in writing Star Trek Borg episodes, Bob, I believe that he would have opted for negotiation. And failing that, surrender. He would have seen the collective as the inevitable and preferable alternative to individual existence. At least, that's my impression I get from my second reading of Childhood's End. If this works the way I think it will, once the invasive program starts spreading, it'll only be a matter of months before the Borg suffer total systems failure. Comments? 
A question. What exactly is Total System's failure? The Borg are extremely computer-dependent. A system's failure will destroy them. I just think we should be clear about that. We're talking about annihilating an entire race. Which, under most circumstances, would be unconscionable. But as I see it, the Borg leave us with little choice. I agree. We're at war. There's been no formal declaration of war. Not from us, but certainly from them. They've attacked us at every encounter. They've declared war on our way of life. We're to be assimilated. But even in war, there are rules. You don't kill civilians indiscriminately. There are no civilians among the Borg. Think of them as a single collective being. There's no one Borg who is more an individual than your arm or your leg. How convenient. Your point, Doctor. When I look at my patient, I don't see a collective consciousness. I don't see a hive. I see a living, breathing boy who has been hurt and who needs our help. And we're talking about sending him back to his people as an instrument of destruction. It comes down to this. We're faced with an enemy who are determined to destroy us, and we have no hope of negotiating a peace. Unless that changes, we are justified in doing anything we can to survive. Security to Captain. Picard here. The Borg has regained consciousness, sir. Acknowledged. We proceed with the plan. Identify yourself. Hugh. Identify yourself. We are Hugh. This is not a Borg identification. Third of five. This culture will be assimilated. They do not wish it. Irrelevant. They will resist us. Resistance is futile. Resistance is not futile. Some have escaped. They will be found. It is inevitable. All will be assimilated. Must Jordy be assimilated? Yes. He does not wish it. He would rather die than be assimilated. Then he will die. No. Jordy must not die. Jordy is a friend. You will assist us to assimilate this vessel. You are Borg. You will assist us. I will not. What did you say? I will not assist you. I. Jordy must not be assimilated. But you are Borg. No. I am Hugh. You know, Bob, everything is uh, individual versus the collective, it seems, and it's either Bill Cosby against the feminists or uh, Hugh against the Borg. I don't know. It's but the history of mankind, if you really think about it. That's been our struggle, to come yeah. from the collective and the tribal to individualism. Yeah, and I think that we're, we're hopefully progressing in the right direction towards the individual. You know, I was talking earlier on about uh, my reading of uh, Revisiting Childhood's End by Arthur C. Clarke. You know, for seven years in the 1980s, I made a running list 
of the titles of all the books I was reading. And I have it in front of me here. Yeah, you sh- I cannot believe that. I wish I had done something like that myself. Yeah, something I think, it's probably an aspect of OCD, <laughs> but nevertheless, <laughs> I still have it. It's right here. Uh, uh, every single it. book I read from 82 to, what is that, 87? Imagine if you listed every television show you ever watched. You'd have to be as thick as the Bible, wouldn't you? I don't have time for all that. (laughs) (laughs) Nobody got time for that. But predominant in that list are books of uh, Arthur C. Clarke, Ray Bradbury, Isaac Asimov, Anne McCaffrey, Edgar Rice Burroughs, Lewis Carroll, H.G. Wells, Mervyn Peake, just to name a few of the sci-fi and fantasy authors that I liked. By the way, 32 of the sci-fi titles I read in 1980s were by Robert A. Heinlein. I was surprised when I counted them up last night. 32 of his books I read. Well, like I said, that's 30 more than I got through. <laughs> and you know, we both started at the same one, Time Enough for Love, right? Yeah. Yeah, I, I found it difficult to get through. Well, actually, that was my love. second was book. And my first one was uh, Stranger in a Strange Land. Ah, I grok. I grok that. Uh, yeah, I grok that too. <laughs> and and I, I loved that book. And I assumed all the rest of his books would be the same. Yeah. I think there was one other one too. Um, I'm not sure, but I'm not sure if it was him or someone else that wrote it. Um, he didn't do The Moon is a Harsh Mistress. Yes, did he? he did. Oh, yeah. that was his? Mm-hmm. Well, I read that one, too. Oh, there you go. Three of them. I used to confuse that with an Arthur C. Clarke book, yeah. yeah. But it's not. You know, unlike the cutout characters, I thought of Arthur C. Clarke, Heinlein's protagonists, who I thought were heroic, competent men and women of action. Unlike Clarke's attitude of surrendering to fate, Heinlein refused to let his characters get away with resignation. Those who quit often died usually horribly. Heinlein wrote stories of survival (laughs) against all odds. He wrote of longevity of life and of love. In fact, the first of his books, like we said, Bob, is Time Enough for Love. That's the one I picked up first. Chronicling the adventures of uh, one Lazarus Long, a character who would appear in several of his later books, either as a protagonist or as a peripheral character. Now, the tapestry of the Heinlein novels centered around his concept of world as myth, There was a large multiverse, and I detest that term, by the way, a multiverse of universes, each created of fictons, or particles created out of the imagination of the people populating those universes. It's a fanciful thing, a fanciful idea to be sure, but quite entertaining. It allowed him to write about anything he wanted, and Mm. he had some good stories come out of that fanciful universe. But what captured my attention with Heinlein was his small-l libertarian political viewpoint which was not necessarily overt. It it wasn't in your face. It was just came out through the actions of the people. You know, do something. Act. Act as individuals. Don't be a group. Don't be a mob. Don't do everything that people, other other people say for you to do. The antagonists, or the black hats in many of his books, were often agents of an overbearing government. The heroes were those quick-minded enough to keep out of their way. Heinlein's political views were on display much more than Clark's, but Clark's views of a benevolent big brother were clear. He wrote about them tacitly, without comment as to whether the existence of a big brother was good or bad. He just was. For example, the central character of the first quarter of Childhood's End was Ricky Stormgren, the Secretary General of the United Nations, who spoke for all mankind to the alien overlords. Can you imagine if a Boutrous Boutrous Ghali, a Kofi Annan, or a Ban Ki-moon were in charge of negotiating the fate of the world with a superior alien race? We'd all be toast. We're doomed. <laughs> <laughs> imagine these, these um, uh, 
yes men, these these career politicians, these these uh, sycophants, were to uh, stand in front of some sort of superior alien and and plead for our existence. Ugh, we might as well just give up now. <laughs> the national leaders, however, of Heinlein's world were insane, power-mad despots, not too far from Trier's reality, if you ask me. The theocratic Nehemiah Scudder is the president of the United States in revolt in 2100, another book of revolution and survival by Heinlein, who had the pulse, I think, of what sold in bookstores. A lot of what he wrote was uh, wrote simply to sell books. That's not to say that uh, they weren't enjoyable uh, and that all that he wrote was pulp, I, though I would admit much of his earlier works were difficult to read as they were directed at a young audience and he had not yet come into his own as a, a wordsmith proper. Now I've just reread via Audible several of Heinlein's books, just the ones featuring Lazarus Long as a character as I found that that thread to be the most enjoyable. I don't think I'll uh, read any more Clark though. Um, it was fun to revisit him even though um, you know, it meant a bit of a change in my opinion of that great man. I tried rereading again via audiobook Isaac Asimov's Foundation trilogy. Trilogy. And by the way, have you read that, Bob? No. The Foundation trilogy no. by Isaac Asimov. No. But I got bogged down in the first one, which was plotting and not the least bit entertaining. That was my experience with Isaac Asimov. Yeah, yeah. And I found the same thing on television adaptations of his stuff as well. Yeah. Yeah. Asimov was more of a non-fiction writer anyway, and his uh, popularization of science and space was on par or even superior to Clark, so Asimov was, again, a great, uh, a great science fiction classical author, a, a great scientist. Now, lastly, though, I want to talk about a writer I've only come up in the last uh, 10 years, Orson Scott Card, though he's been around for uh, since the 70s, uh, just after some of the great ones like uh, Clark and Asimov and Heinlein. I have all kinds of people after me to start reading his books. <laughs> <laughs> I, I highly recommend his writing. It's crisp, it's succinct, with nary a wasted letter. His plots are imaginative and intricate, with many having a twist at the end, which I always enjoy. Now, Ender's Game was the first one I picked up. At, by the way, at the insistence of your daughter, Bob. <laughs> yeah, who, who's also one of the people still bugging me to do it, to read it. <laughs> I don't know if you'd like it. You're, you're not a fiction guy. You don't get into that fiction stuff. Uh, I would if I could sit down and read the book. I have to almost read it in one sitting mm -hmm. in order to enjoy it. And I just have not had that opportunity. I have to have a long vacation sometime. That was the last time I read a book was when I had a long vacation. Back in 64? 64, 64. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I thoroughly enjoyed Ender's Game. Of course, it finally came out in the movie form in 2003. That's it, Bob. Don't read the book. Just sit down and watch the movie. Have you seen the movie? Which one? Ender's Game. No. Oh, Harrison Ford's in it. You might like that. You're kidding. They made no. it a movie already? Yeah. Oh. Well, already. 2013. Oh. Um, and I think they did the book justice, by the way. But, of course, they'd have to because Orson Scott Card co-produced the movie. Mm. So he had his hand in it. Uh, but lately, I've read uh, or listened to, by the way, I found the process of absorbing a book via audio to be just as enjoyable as reading the printed word. As a matter of fact, I think the process in the mind is very is the same. I, I, I'm listening to these books as I commute to work. Yeah, you're, and, in, you're in your car a lot. I know. Yeah, and I think that when I'm listening to them, I'm in the exact same mindset, and I think I'm using the same old gray cells that I would if I was reading the printed word. Really? Audible.com is, or any audio book, they're great resources for uh, listening to, to books that you just don't have the time to sit down and read otherwise. 
Anyway, uh, lately I finished the first of his Alvin Maker books, the Complete Pathfinder series, and right now I'm reading The Lost Gate. All are thoroughly enjoyable, but fanciful. They're not really science fiction. They're they're uh, fancy. It's, uh, funny fa- you're fantasy. Still, it's funny you're still using the word I'm reading because you're really, yeah. you're really listening. I'm listening to it, but I mean... <laughs> Yeah, I, I think reading is probably the, the proper proper way. I mean, if I was uh, blind and somebody, you know, had to read the books to me, it's like, uh, yes, I've read that. Yeah, I guess. You know, so it's the same thing. Now, as to whether or not any of Card's personal philosophy, which is what the, the sort of the theme of this uh, segment is about, um, his religion or his politics is evident in his writings, it's hard to tell. Apparently, he's a devout Mormon. But since I have no clue as to what Mormonism <laughs> is... Um, I can't say that I can recognize it in any stories other than the fact, of course, that they're flights of fancy. <laughs> and most religions, are, if not all the religions, are flights of fancy. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think those two things necessarily relate, but you know. Yeah, I don't even know what Mormonism is, so I can't tell you if, he's, if it's in his books or not. I wouldn't know to recognize it, even if it was explicit. Now, he describes himself, um, through my reading of about him, as a liberal, uh, but none of his books are political in nature, so they don't lend themselves to much political analysis. The, though I knew that he supported, um, who was that uh, Mormon Republican candidate who lost? Uh, oh, geez. Uh, On the anyway. tip of my tongue, I know who you're talking about. Yeah, he supported him, but I think that's just the Mormonism coming out. He's also an advocate, by the way, of laws against homosexuality, thinking that it should be a criminal act. But as we've said on this show before, you must separate the man from his art. And although I disagree with Caradoni's views on homosexuality, I have no opinion of the man. But his art is masterful, and I highly recommend it. And I think I'll get back into that trend of writing down the titles and authors of books as I read them, because it seemed to have served me well, at least in the production of this part of the show. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. So anyway, uh, that's all we have today, Bob. Any final words? No, that's it for our first 2015 broadcast. Join us again next week, and we'll continue our journey in the right direction. Until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. We'll see ya. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. Frankly, this is one I believe in. Okay, here we go. Encouraging more women to pursue a career in the sciences. Come on, if I was any good at convincing women to do stuff, I wouldn't have spent so much of my 20s in the shower. <laughs> If you ask me, this whole thing is a waste of our time. Helping women? Yeah, helping anyone. (laughs) You don't think it's worthwhile to try to get more women working in science? I think that's incredibly sexist of you. I believe in a gender-blind society, like in Star Trek, where women and men of all races and creeds work side by side as equals. You mean where they were advanced enough to invent an interstellar warp drive, but a black lady still answered the space phone? (laughs) 